So as always, let the sound of the gong bring you into your body, into your um, place of being, into your sense of being in your body. Connect with where your body is, a certain seat in a certain room, and uh, notice that room. Notice the room you're in. Before you do anything else, posture and so forth, just check out the room. Feel the space around you, size, dimension of the room, objects in the room, space behind, above, below. You're in a house like I am, first floor. It's not much space below you. It's the ground. Above you, there's lots of space. And when you open up the roof, if you're in like a apartment building, you guys in New York, you're way up on the 20th floor. You got a lot of space underneath you and much less space above you because you're so high. Just kidding. Find the breath. Straighten up the posture, pushing upward, back of the head. Breathe down to the lower belly. Relax just a little bit so the posture is not strained. Find that place where you're not jutting your abdomen forward, but you're not hunched over. Open up the shoulders, 
Open up the chest, spread the shoulders, bring them down. And turn the chin down just slightly. So you're looking at sort of midway between 45 and 90 degrees. And relax. So the preparation for Vipassana is always shamatha for a while. That while can be 10, 15 minutes or 10, 15 years. Remember to open the gaze, the frames. See if you can open to the full expanse of the visual field all around. Seeing one big screen, notice the tendency to hold it and relax that and just let it be there. Continuing to connect to the breath in the lower abdomen. And just relaxing, completely letting go. Scanning the body to see areas of tension. And just bringing your awareness to those areas, relaxing them. The head, the face, the jaws, the neck, the shoulders, the back, the stomach, the chest, the abdomen, the lower back, the butt, the legs, the thighs, the calves and the feet. As you relax the, the body completely, you connect to its sense of being alive. You feel the liveliness in the body. Sometimes it feels like there's motion, energy flowing, maybe blood flowing. Maybe there's a tingling sensation all over the skin or a vibration throughout the body. Which is a sense of relaxation.
Continue remembering to relax, open the gaze, connect with the breath. Begin to emphasize the out-breath. Spreading out awareness with the out-breath into the space in front. Extending out further to the space, larger space in front. On the in-breath, bring that awareness back around in all directions, completing the circle of awareness coming behind you, back into your body and connect with the out, the next out-breath. You can use your gaze to enhance this. And as you go out with the out-breath, the gaze narrows down as your mind focuses on the out-breath. And then as it goes out, your gaze opens gradually, completely, comes all the way around, and you're back in your body. And when you're comfortable doing that, holding that completely open field of vision all at the same time, gradually lessen the attention on the breath. Still aware of the breath in the space, the larger space. And refine your senses. Be really precise as to what you hear, what you feel, the sensation of thinking. Begin to examine perception. starting with the objects, the perceptions, the sounds and the feelings and the light, the sense of a visual field. And notice the quality of mind that's aware of that, all those things. Notice the knowing And for contrast, drop back down to the breath and focus that knowing on the breath. And feel that collapse 
and that focus. The breath right at the nose, coming in and out. And then in a relaxed way, open up again slowly. Raise the gaze a little bit and open the gaze and connect back into the space in the entire room, merging mind with space. Hear all the sounds in the room, inside the body, the sensations inside the body, the thoughts appearing somewhere or another, sense of a visual field. And then drop back towards the back of your head. Notice the visual field. Investigate where is this visual field being projected? you lose the sense of where you are, drop it and just relax and open back into that larger sphere. And then look again, where is seeing going on, the visual sense? Where am I looking from? Is it the surface of my eyes that I'm looking from? Is it the middle of my head? Is it the back of my head? Is it behind my head or around my head? Where am I looking at the visual field from? And then relax that and look at sound. Where am I listening from? Where am I listening to? Where are the sounds that I'm listening to coming from? Focus in on a sound locate its direction. And then relax back out and feel all sounds at once. Where is the sound being heard? 
and relax again. Connect back to the breath in a larger way, not in a focused way, but just feeling the breath coming in and out, breathing down low if you can. Feel the expansion of the body as the breath comes in, wherever that is, the chest, the stomach, or the abdomen. Try to figure out where are you feeling that from? Are you feeling it in your stomach and your head at the same time? Where's the feeling of this, of the body expanding on the in-breath happening? Shift down into it and be in the stomach or wherever the expansion is happening. Just feel that. And then take a step back or two and continue to breathe. Is that feeling being felt somewhere else up above? And then slowly, in a relaxed way, begin to think about where is this investigation happening? Who's thinking? Where is the thinking of the breath and the sounds and the vision? Where's all that happening? Who's talking? Who's doing it? By talking to yourself internally and say, I am located in the, if you can complete that sentence, or I am located in my, And then play with the feeling of, I'm located in my. If you're located in my head, for example, or your head rather, who is it that has the head? Who's the me that has a my? When we say my head, 
Who is the me? And can that me travel down into your stomach? And if it traveled down into your stomach, then where did it travel down from? And then just relax. Let all these odd interrogations fade into the background and just come back into the space in the room. And relax and settle back into shamatha, connecting with the breath, labeling thoughts either overtly or not overtly, dissolving thoughts. And just relax into the space of shamatha. Humming. Yeah, I was hoping you would hum along. Yeah, so please uh, tolerate that for a minute while I do what I should have done before, which is find uh, my digital form of the readings. Let's see who sent it. What's my name? Where am I sending email from? Poshna for today, right? Who's sending email? Who's tweeting? I'll mend my answer while you search emptiness of self, emptiness of phenomena, emptiness of mind, Alaya. Uh. <laughs> no? Cool, we're getting warmer. When did I send? I sent it Friday morning. And we're in March. Sorry about that. Let's see. Oh, I sent you some stuff on Xinjiang. I hope that was acceptable. Looks like you sent it on the 19th, Derek.
Okay, in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Omanjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening and again, welcome to class 10 of the uh, Eric. Was that a wave or a wave hello or a question? Oh yeah, that was, sorry, just a hello. Good, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, we're going through the uh, practice of Shamatha Vipassana meditation as presented by uh, the lineage of uh, certain certain uh, set of lineage teachers starting with the Buddha in his Mahayana manifestation and by the way you know guys uh, maybe you've noticed has anyone noticed there's been a lot of references to this sutra called the unraveling of the knot or unraveling of the intent right I don't know how much you guys keep track of like the sources like what who's saying what where when and why but um, that's the main sutra source that's that sutra it has a chapter the eighth chapter called the questions of Maitreya and uh, the Buddha does this download on Shamatha Vipassana to him and it provides the whole scheme for what follows largely doesn't provide all of it. Um, doesn't actually present these four stages, but it presents a lot of other of the other stuff. Or at least not that I've found these four stages. It's sort of hard to understand. The sutras tend to be Mahayana sutras tend to be difficult to comprehend. But um the hum ah yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so um, from the Buddha to in uh, that sutra presented. And uh, so tonight we get to see it like a historical progression of how the practice of Vipassana has come down to us through the ages, through these scheme of teachers. And uh, before we jump into that scheme, I just want to visit, uh, there's a couple of readings from class seven that I never got to, and I want to start with one of them, and then we'll do the other shortly. So I'm going to open up uh, the source, the readings for class seven. We're on 10, and there's at least two more classes, depending upon if we want to add a class, like if uh, if we don't cover things thoroughly enough, and we want to go more slowly through something or revisit something. Uh, so far, nobody has expressed interest much in anything, so we can just sort of glide through. <laughs> okay, so here's uh, 
no, here's 10, here's seven. And there was a couple of these that I skipped. Page numbers. Ooh, what a treat, huh? Page number 16 in, in class seven's book, Rediscovering Yourself. That implies that you've already discovered yourself at one point, which might be a stretch for somebody like me. Um, so this is just like little lead in of like, you know, what's meditation about? The meditator uses any and all of these eight types of consciousness. So this comes after a presentation on the eight types of consciousness. And uh, Rimshe presented the eight types of consciousness frequently in going through meditation. And uh, it's a little bit different than other traditions in that he sort of wove in the understanding of mind into his presentation of meditation uh, because he was sort of weaving in contemplative uh, prajna with meditative prajna into vipassana. Contemplative prajna being the sort of uh, rumination upon the teachings of the nature of mind in the Abhidharma, let's say, where we classify the mind in terms of six or eight types depending upon the tradition. And we're, so we're breaking down the, fic the fiction of a self which uses the main strategy that the self uses as a, is that it presents itself as a continuum or a whole. Not like in the middle of a donut, but a whole package, like a, a, an entire unit, like that it's one thing. And so the main strategy that Buddhism uses is Julius Caesar's divide and conquer. We divide up the sense of our experience into parts, and then we see the part na partness nature of our existence, and thereby ideally present ourselves with a framework for then bringing uh, bringing up the the uh, exploration of the sense of wholeness in our meditation practice, and looking where is the sense that I'm like one unified entity coming from certainly not coming from your feet anyway so uh, the main way of doing that in the Mahayana tradition is to look at the nature of consciousness in various ways and Rinpoche likes the eight types of consciousness so you need to learn how to work with the eight types of them the popular idea of meditation is we're trying to attain a higher state of consciousness outside of you know the whole scheme we want to clean up the eight consciousness into some sort of absolute consciousness, a higher, superior form of eight types of consciousness. But that approach is problematic. Relating intelligently with the technique of meditation does not have to be a project of sticking out your neck and looking beyond what you are, i.e. right now, as you are. You're not trying to avoid or transcend. Instead, you could remain in the state of what you are going through the eye of the needle. In meditation practice, we use these eight types as material. I'm sorry. In using these eight types, we find to our surprise that we've not made a real and complete relationship to them. We exist as we are born with eight types, but we haven't actually looked at those happenings in your being. <laughs> like the way he calls them, happenings. And that way you are much more akin to an ape 
Oof. Did he just, yeah, he did. Okay. Okay. Uh, then an intelligent being. Therefore, the first project, so to speak, of meditation is to realize and rediscover eight types of consciousness, i.e. the nature of your mind in a very, in a very, uh, you know, conventional, not ultimate, but just uh, basic experiential way. Working with them, you're not trying to overcome them or do anything funny or manipulate them in some cunning way. You don't have, it's not a race, it's not like a challenge. Instead, you're just recovering, rediscovering them, becoming a more refined animal by developing perfect and complete understanding of your own mind. So through meditation, you begin to understand these eight and to know their functions inside and out, and you understand the five skandhas as well. So realizing the subtleties of consciousness in this way is by no means rein reinforcing ego. This is an interesting point. It's actually ego is like reinforced enough and actually looking at the details in this way is the beginning point of undermining ego. It's like examining your body. You think your body is this or that, beautiful or active and powerful. But once you begin to study the muscles, bones, and organs, and you see an x-ray, which probably we've all seen. We've all seen like x-rays of our body, and you see your leg or whatever as just like these uh, made up of these white masses that are bones. And it's like, oh, okay. You begin to feel slightly insecure. At the same time, it's very interesting. You get a new perspective of your body and how it functions. So usually the eight, we are all lumped together. We experience our mind usually as one thing, one happening, so to speak. But in meditation, we sort them out. You begin to see the functions of mind completely and clearly. You know which part is which. In the meditative state, there could be an experiencer of the unconscious. That's the whole point. So that's a little odd thing. Suddenly, the unconscious. So the unconscious is sort of the eighth consciousness. He, he refers to it as that here and there. And so we're actually experiencing, or the, there's an experiencer of that. Normally, uh, in Western thought, when you're unconscious, there's sort of nobody experiencing that. That's the whole point. So far, the whole thing has been so lumped together, you've forgotten your being, your sense of existence. But once you have time to slow down, think, and pay attention to the various details, like breathing, you begin to realize yourself. You begin to realize that you're what the self is. It's as if you've been lying in bed for a long time, not allowed to move, and begin to rediscover your limbs, your fingers, and toes. You know, like maybe, maybe you got really drunk, probably we all got really drunk you know in our youth and like you wake up the next morning and uh, the best is if you've ever like don't remember where you are when you wake up and the sense of like coming back into your body and your mind so in meditation it's like we're waking up and really discovering ourselves i'm going to skip to this so there doesn't seem to be anything transcendental or enlightened outside of the eight types of consciousness it's not so, it's not like we're looking at them so that we can then separate them from the transcendent. So the first step is just to rest with what you have and not look ahead too far. 
And as you meditate, your experience of duality becomes sharpened and you become more perky. So, again, it's a little bit counterintuitive. It seems like we're solidifying the sense of self. We're solidifying duality, sense of duality. And we need to do this to, to become aware of the all-pervasive sense of duality and self that's there all the time. But we're so in it that we're not aware of it. And you become more perky. Your deprivation, that's an interesting phrase, your dep deprivation becomes sharpened. And I guess he's referring to, we're like, um, well, here he says, you were just, before you were just stuck in the slums and you had no way out and you began to feel it now that there are ways out. So, well, let's not make too much to that. But at the same time, you're beginning to feel that your situation is workable. So the starting point is not to get out completely, but to connect with where you are. Instead of like, initially when we realize that we're in something we don't want to be in, we immediately try to get out. And the first, instead, the first step is to experience where we are vividly. Instead, you're given a teaser, you get out partially. Just by looking at where we are, there's a slight shift. At that point, your original primitive pain is somewhat lessened. But then you have the ambition to get beyond that, to get completely better, and you become very competitive. And that ambition grows and grows, and ambition grows, confusion grows. But at a certain point, that confusion becomes encouragement rather than an obstacle. Feel much sturdier and more secure if you carry a heavy walking stick. <laughs> Speak softly and carry, you know, meditate a lot and carry a big stick. So, you know, he's like jumping ahead and he's like presenting this sort of trajectory of how to view the progress in meditation that, uh, let's say, you're given a little teaser initially, you get out partially. And uh, you, at that point, your original primitive pain, there's somewhat a lessening of the pain of our existence because we, we have like a sense of spaciousness finally. In some ways, this is a little bit like poking out of the cocoon if you're familiar with more with the Shambhala system. Then there's immediately, oh, I want to get out beyond that to get completely better and you get competitive, bless you. So... You have to notice the ambition and let go of the ambition, but at the same time sort of ride the energy of the ambition to continue seeking clarity. You know, as, as you become more ambitious, confusion grows. But at a certain point, the confusion becomes encouragement rather than an obstacle if you remain genuine with the process. Okay. So let's shift back to um, to uh, the world of uh, the tenth class, ten stages of uh, vipassana. So um, now we're going to see these four stages probably ten, maybe twelve times tonight. So. There'll be a quiz at the end. I expect you all to get them down this by the end of tonight, if anything.
the yoga of non-referential percept. Of course, they have to come up with some real tongue twister title or term for it. So you have to struggle just to think, what are the hell are they talking about? But okay, we're talking about the object. And it becomes yoga, becomes a union or a, or a, a practice when it has, uh, when we realize the object without reference point, without reference. We're, we accomplish that by virtue of understanding that the percept is with is empty like space, the object. The yoga of the non-referential perceiver, subject. And uh, we look at the subject as to its origin, its abiding, its shape, and so forth. So that's the second stage. So first stage is the object. First, second, second stage is the subject. And then the sphere of not finding. Welcome to the sphere of not finding. Good evening. Please take a seat anywhere. You can't find one. Can't find one. Okay, discriminated knowledge itself. So uh, the understanding that, that experiences the emptiness of object and subject vanishes in the expanse of not finding. So we do this process of looking, realizing that things aren't the way we thought them to be. We release them from our projection of what they are and we open, we relax, we let go. We do that with the object we do that with the perceiver, and then we do that with the result, the understanding, the experience. We do that same process of looking, understanding things are not our projection, relaxing the projection, letting go, opening. And then we just give up doing anything. So the third step is like where the, the firewood that uh, you use to start the fire burns up along with all of the other wood, the kindling. So in other words, the conceptual mind that you use to understand the emptiness of object and subject, that conceptual mind burns itself up. And the fourth step is just letting go completely. No more project at all. This one rests free of grasping. Okay, so start with uh, John Lecontrol. Uh, maybe the re repetition is good. The nature of the percept is understood to be empty like space. The object, the perceiver, is examined as to origin, abiding shape. Discriminating knowledge itself, like a fire produced by rubbing wood, vanishes in the expanse of not finding. And last and fourth step is that's when rests free of grasping. And you may say, okay, so the first one is like emptiness of phenomena. If you know the two different types of emptiness and, or egolessness. And those terms are, can be considered to be synonymous in this current context, egolessness and emptiness. When we've refined the the use of those words by uh, 
by applying them to different types of objects. There's persons and everything else. So you might think, okay, this first one is the emptiness of phenomena. And there were a couple of readings in, I think, class nine or eight on the ego and the two types, the different types of egolessness that I didn't get to. Uh, but I hope you read them. And if you didn't, I hope you do. Because they give you the background understanding that you need to then bring into meditation practice. They are the establishment of the view. And we looked at the development of Vipassana. It says, starts with first establish the prerequisites, first establish the view. And that's the view. The view is of the egolessness or emptiness of self or person and phenomenon. And understanding that difference and what the emptiness and egolessness is. What it is empty of, in what way it's empty. Those things are empty. Derek? Yes, ma'am. Um, just a, a question, a clarification about those two words, selflessness and egolessness. Does it also have to do with um, Hinayana versus Mahayana? Uh, selflessness the, the, is more Hinayana and egolessness is more Mahayana? No, emptiness, no? emptiness is more... I meant, Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> That's correct. In, in the Mahayana, the, the tendency is to talk about emptiness of self and phenomena, whereas in the Hinayana, the emphasis, the, the, the terminology is generally egolessness or selflessness. And they're self. comparable. Yes, they are. Okay. I mean, there's, there's a whole nuance about the the profundity of the understanding of the absence, be it egolessness or emptiness between the Hinayana and the Mahayana that I'm not going to delve into. Okay. But we're actually in the readings, this idea of there being a two-part nature to the emptiness of the phenomenon, right? So anyway, you may think, oh, this is emptiness of phenomena and this is emptiness of the, of the self, the person. And this is a fine point and not a big point, but just to lay it out there, share my primitive understanding with you. I, um, I have read in many other places that the, the general tradition, uh, trajectory in, in Buddhism of understanding the emptiness of self and, and phenomena was to start with the emptiness of self. So I asked my guru, Carl Brunholzl, why is the order reversed here? And he said, well, really, this is a progression through emptiness of phenomena. This is a Mahayana scheme. And in the Mahayana, we're assuming that you've already understood the emptiness of the person. And so when we talk about the perceiver here, that's not the same as the ego of the person or the self of the person. This, this, the perceiver, this is like the second fold of the twofold egolessness of phenomena. That's not a big key point, really, to getting the gist of the stages of Vipassana, but in terms of establishing the view, that's sort of a critical point. It's two parts to the emptiness of phenomena. Okay. While resting in equipoise on four, etc., 
What does he mean form, etc.? Anybody? Like, what does the etc. refer to, Anya? Skandas? Yeah, what are the other skandas? Jane? Uh, That's one of them, laughter. Uh, it is not. Uh, concept? Uh, can I get a lifeline, Cynthia? <laughs> Feeling? Yeah, yeah. Good, good form, feeling. Consciousness? Consciousness, yes. Okay, we got four out of five. The last, <laughs> the last one is perception or uh, discrimination. Good, so while resting in equipoise on form, so on the skanda, so we're we're in meditation on the on the five skandhas as the object. One also realizes its empty nature, i.e., the object form, or etc., by means of discriminating knowledge, by prajna, by understanding the reasons for emptiness, the reasonings of emptiness, impermanence, partness, lack of ownership, lack of uh, you know, the, the easy form of understanding egolessness is uh, impermanence. There's no continuity, ultimately, in any part of the mind or the body. The second quality is that there is no wholeness. There's only many, many parts that function together in a way to project the feeling of there being a whole unitary entity. And the third one is that you can't find out who's in charge. When you look for the looker, the looker looks back and looks at you and says, I thought you were the looker. Sort of, just kidding. Anyway, um, so that's what we do with our prajna discriminating knowledge. Uh, so we realize it's empty nature and we remain in the state without beginning, with, sorry, we remain in that state of realizing its empty nature without being attentive to the attributes of the object. In other words, we've, we've already done the analysis outside of meditation, we've understood the emptiness of objects. And then in meditation, we flash on the essence of that realization. And then we remain in the state, in that state of experiencing the emptiness of objects. Without further examination, we no longer repeat the examination. We begin by familiarizing oneself with the practice of doing that, flashing on the, uh, the understanding of emptiness to the best of our ability, and then letting go. And as a result, one comes to cognize emptiness as if suspended in the midst of space. This is the sort of feeling that it, it results in, that we're just sort of groundless, floating in space, with no reference even to the nature of mere pure percept object. No reference to any object. This is the yoga of non-referential percept. The yoga meaning the... Um, the practice of experiencing the absence of objects.
and is the external aspect of meditation, meditation on appearance and emptiness as inseparable. The internal aspect refers to the perceiver. When, for example, anger arises in consciousness, one should identify it and examine it with discriminating knowledge. First, one looks for the cause of its arising and whether it dwells within or without, and if it has any shape or color. So um, anger may not be a frequent experience for some of us or many of us, so bring up irritation, boredom, you know, whatever other emotive sort of experiences arise and identify it, examine it with discriminating knowledge. So examining with discriminating knowledge means how do I recognize something as being what it is? How do I separate it from other things, what makes anger, irritation, irritation, that feeling? How do I recognize, oh, that's irritation? Then we look for the cause of its arising. Oh, I'm irritated because this class is so boring. And then whether it dwells within or without. So is that irritation like in my mind or is it like pervading my body? Or is it like around me? Where is my irritation? Does my irritation have any characteristics, shape or color? Does irritation have, uh, you know, we know mind is formless. And so mind does not have shape and color. And so intellectually, we know the answers. But um, we sort of, not, not sort of, sorry, we, we all feel like our mind and the experiences of, of our mind are present in a, in a way that we can um, touch them with our cognition. The language supports that too. You think of seeing red or feeling blue. Yeah, yeah. That's right, seeing red, anger, feeling blue, melancholy. That's cool. Thank you. Finding nothing whatsoever when rests in equipoise within that understanding of not finding inside or outside or where it is or its characteristics. This method is to be applied to whichever the root of six root afflictions may arise, as well as to neutral thoughts, etc. Basically, Whatever type of thought arises, one should be aware of it and meditate as described above. So this is the practice. Uh, there was a reading in, in one of the classes that we didn't get to on uh, mixing mind with space. Ripshe goes through this. I should have uh, figured out where that was. Uh, instead, let's we'll come to it next week as sort of the conclusion. Um, this is the yoga of non-referential perceiver, and is the internal meditation on awareness and emptiness as inseparable. So these different these uh, different inseparables, inseparable appearance emptiness, realizing that all appearances are empty, and so they're joined with emptiness in a way that 
emptiness is not something separate that they've sort of joined with, but they are one. Similarly, my awareness or the contents of my awareness are empty. Finally, the object examined, either percept or perceiver and discriminating knowledge itself, vanished into the sphere of not finding just as a fire produced by rubbing wood together. Now he's putting this in quotation marks because he's quoting this famous sutra, the questions of Kashyapa, where the Buddha presents this scheme of a conceptual mind burning itself out of existence. At that point, one rests in a state free of grasping, no longer trying to do anything. He quotes from Atisha, the mind of the past has ceased, the mind of the future hasn't arisen, and the mind of the, and the present mind is extremely difficult to find or examine. This is because just like space, it has neither color or shape or color. Now again, we know the mind has no shape or color because um, it's formless, but shape, it's like code language for it. it has no characteristics. It has no recognizable characteristics by which I can say, oh, there's the beginning or end of my mind. Derek, yes, uh, man. I keep hearing, I keep expecting to turn a page and find the kayas because this sounds like the kayas, but I never hear that referenced and I am I just way off base? The kayas, is that a rock band? I'm sorry, who, who are the Kayas? Are they like a, a family, like the Cohen brothers? <laughs> maybe, maybe. My favorite one is Svabhavaka Kaya. Svabhavaka Kaya, I, I see those Kayas. to say it. Those Kayas, that's cool. <laughs> I knew that, okay, no, it's, uh, the, the Kayas are not here today. I'm sorry. Okay, thanks. Um, therefore, the mind cannot be dis established as truly ex exists, and alternatively, this lack of true existence can be proven by reasons such as neither one nor many. So he's referring to the standard logics for understanding or for proving, so to speak, emptiness. The things are neither one nor many. They're not a unity, nor if things, you know, have endless parts and the parts of parts ad infinitum, then they're not like a multi, you know, just like a conglomeration of things because you can't find, you know, there's no bottom to that, no end to that. Uh, and then there's the, the reasoning of non-production, you know, cause and effect never actually meet. You can't introduce them to each other. Or by, because... It is by nature luminosity. That's just interesting reasoning. It's not the common one, but thus one investigates with a sharp weapon of reasoning. So it's a, a common phrase in the in the Mahayana tradition. This idea of a sharp weapon of understanding that cuts the uh, fiction of belief in uh, reality of true reality and realizes this absence of true existence of the present mind. In this way, when neither percept nor perceiver can be established as 
anything whatsoever discriminating knowledge as well is understood to lack inherent existence. For example, by rubbing together two pieces of wood, fire is produced, which in turn consumes the very wood. As a result, the fire itself disappears, subsides. Likewise, when all abstract and concrete phenomena are established as not inherently existent, so abstract phenomena are concepts like um, a book. Sorry, that's not a very good example. Um, world peace, I would somehow think of that world peace as, a, as the concept. And then concrete phenomena are like books, even though books are conglomerations of pages, are established as not inherently existing, that existent then discriminating knowledge itself is beyond duality, cannot be established as anything whatsoever. It is luminosity beyond mental fabrications. There's this idea in the tradition that if the object of cognition is not real, then that cognition is not a real cognition. If you're not actually cognizing anything, then there's no cognition happening. Because you can't say that there's cognition because there's not a cognition of something. How can there be cognition if there's no cognition of something? Anyway, uh, therefore, all conditions such as laxity and agitation, which are the main obstacles in shamatha, that impact your ability to come to this realization of Vipassana are cleared away. And at that point, awareness is totally free of concepts. Nothing is perceived. And I take that as a, um, in, in the sense that uh, there's, there's not anything that's perceived, as opposed to perceiving something called nothing. Right, and all recollection—sorry, all recollection and mental activity—have been eliminated. For as long as the enemy or thief of conceptuality, ooh, that's rough. Calling conceptuality an enemy or a thief, but anyway, as long as that creature has not arisen, let awareness rest in the man in its matter. The conjure brings the whole thing together, explains it very nicely, packages it. Um, just briefly, just give you this sort of historical presentation. You'll, you'll see these four stages over and over again, so I won't go into them in detail, but this is one of the earliest versions of it from the sutra called the uh, uh, avatar, means the, the entry into or the traveling to the, it's the uh, island of Lanka, Sri Lanka. It's this sutra that uh, depicts uh, a theoretical trip that the Buddha made to Sri Lanka. And in that, uh, it says, by relying on mere mind, one does not imagine outer objects. And so there's two ways of presenting each stage. One way is to present the, uh, the object and then the, the reasoning or the conclusion and then the reasoning for that conclusion, or you can present the reasoning and then the conclusion. So Kongshul presented the conclusion. Uh, sorry, he presented the object and then the reasoning. He presented uh, the external percept is realized to be empty because of this and that. Here we say, by relying on mere mind, by, and 
Blanca Vittori's future is famous for presenting the notion of mind only. So by realizing that all phenomena are mind, because when you examine them, you can't find them, one gives up imagining that outer objects exist, i.e. the way we think they do. By resting in the observed object of suchness, so by looking at uh, the perception of emptiness, one thereby goes beyond mind only, mere mind. Going beyond mere mind, one must even go beyond the non-appearance of subject and object. The genuine yogic practitioner who rests in non-appearance sees the Mahayana, the great vehicle. It's like... They're, they're, it's like the, the term Mahamudra in our tradition means a practice as well as the result of enlightened mind. So when we say, like, you would see Mahamudra, that's seeing the true nature of reality in, a, in an experiential way. So here he says, the Buddha says, uh, one sees Mahayana, the true nature of reality. The spontaneously present peaceful resting is completely purified through aspiration prayers. It's an interesting little addition is that you experience a state of spontaneous presence that's, that rests peacefully. This is code language for a non-abiding nirvana, peace. So non-abiding nirvana is spontaneously present and we, we experience this fully be purified through cultivating aspirations to do so, which is another whole kettle of fish that we should not get lost in. Genuine as identityless, i.e., empty wisdom, sees by way of non-appearance. It sees by way of looking at what doesn't appear. That's a sort of pretty cool presentation because the Buddha was a pretty cool guy. He really had a good turn of, of phrase, actually, even though he gets a bad rap a lot for being repetitive. So here we have Nagarjuna in this thing called the commentary on the Bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment. And uh, Dr. Brunholzl presents this. And here's the actual text. As the entities of apprehend or unapprehended, the appearances of consciousness do not exist as outer objects that are different from consciousness. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. He's saying that the appearances of consciousness are apprehender and apprehended. Consciousness appears as subject and objects. But they don't exist as real objects that are different from that consciousness. So... It, it would take a while to go through all these different versions and the nuances of them, but you'll see that um, outer that base. I'll just sort of outline the stages. Outer objects do not exist. So the the step of realizing that all appearances occur within the mind as expressions of the mind, but it continues. Uh, the teaching that all of these are mere mind. It's not an ultimate teaching. It's just a, a stepping stone for us to understand the, the true nature of reality, that not even mind is truly existent. So um, it is for the sake of removing fear of naive beings, not meant to 
terms of true reality. It, meaning the mind, is without characteristics and unarisen. So the mind is also empty. And this, the, the, this notion of emptiness of all of these things is what beginners, inferior beings like me, meditate on. It's not the actual emptiness. This is sort of uh, ancillary, so I'm going to skip this paragraph. But to abide without observing the mind is a characteristic of space. Their meditation on emptiness is declared to be space meditation. So uh, letting go of the realization of emptiness. This blissful mind is peacefulness. So the, the basic framework, here we have... Um, the chapter on insight from the stages of meditation by Kamala Shila, this famous author who put uh, who composed three different texts on the stages of meditation uh, as guidebooks for Tibetans back in the eighth century. They they needed something to help them understand what meditation was. So this is the key text for all schools of Buddhism in Tibet in terms of how do we meditate. They all go back to this one text, Kamala Shila's Stages of Meditation, in three parts, and this is from part two. It's the most extensive one on, on the actual technique and has a chapter on insight. So this is uh, the transition after realizing calm abiding. Meditate on insight, thinking. So this is like, why do I need to meditate on insight? All the teachings of Buddha are perfect teachings, and they directly and indirectly reveal to suchness. If you understand suchness, you'll be free of all the bad or wrong views. Mere calm abiding meditation alone cannot purify pristine awareness, nor can it eliminate the darkness of obscurations. However, when I meditate properly on suchness with the wisdom, pristine awareness will be purified, i.e., therefore, only with wisdom can I realize suchness, reality. Only with wisdom can I effectively eradicate obscurations by realizing suchness. Therefore, engaging in contemplating meditation, I must then search for suchness with wisdom. I shall not remain in calm, content with calm abiding alone. What is the suchness? It is the nature of all phenomena that ultimately they are empty of the self and persons and phenomena. This is realized through the perfection of wisdom and not otherwise. Prashaparamita. The sutra that I mentioned, the unraveling of the thought sutra reads, O Tathagata, by which perfection does Bodhisattvas apprehend this emptiness? It's the sixth perfection. Prashaparamita. Selflessness of persons. Person is not observed as separate from the mental and physical aggregates. So this one is the complete version where he starts with selflessness of persons. The person as a phenomenon cannot exist except as one or many, and therefore we must include that it's wholly mistaken because we can't find self of person that is either one or many. Then we have the selflessness of phenomena. All phenomena are included under the five aggregates, the 12 
ayatanas, their sources of perception of needs and dhatus, their elements. All of these are, in the ultimate sense, nothing other than aspects of the mind. Because when they're broken into subtle particles, and the nature of those parts or particles of these particles is individually examined, no definite identity can be found. We didn't go into this in depth, but this is one of the main reasonings for emptiness is neither one nor many. And the focus is on things are not one because they're all broken down into parts, atoms, and atoms are broken into atoms. And there's no fundamental, unbreakable, partless particle. In the ultimate sense, the mind too cannot be real. How can the mind that apprehends only the false nature of physical and form, physical form and so forth, and appears in all these different aspects be real? So he used that logic that it's the object of perception is not real, it's not a real perception, and so there's no the, the perceiver is not real. Just as physical forms and so forth are false, since the mind does not exist separately from physical forms, it too is false. So the mind, by nature, is like an illusion. And then uh, analyze that, just like the mind, the nature of all phenomena is like an illusion. When the identity of the mind is examined by wisdom in the ultimate sense, it's neither perceived, neither within nor without nor in the absence of both. Neither the mind of the past, the future, nor that of the present is perceived. When mind is unborn, it comes from nowhere. When it ceases, it goes nowhere. Because the mind is inapprehensible, undemonstrable, demonstrable, sorry, and non-physical. If you ask, what is the entityness of that mind, which is inapprehensible and so forth, the Buddha says, O Kashipa, when the mind is thoroughly sought, it cannot be found. What cannot be found cannot be perceived, and what is not perceived is neither past, nor future, nor present. Through that, we understand that the mind is ultimately not seen, and the end of the mind is not seen. The beginning and the middle, all of them are not seen. All phenomena should be understood as lacking an end and a middle just as the mind does not have an end or a middle. With the knowledge that the mind is without an end or a middle, no entity of mind can be perceived. He sort of gave up on the beginning, focused on the end and the middle. But it's thoroughly realized by the mind, too, it's realized as being empty, the realization itself, the understanding, by realizing that the very identity which is established as the aspect of mind, like the identity of physical form and so forth, is ultimately not perceived in this way. When the person does not ultimately see the identity of phenomena through wisdom, one will not analyze whether physical form is permanent, permanent, empty, not empty, so forth and so forth. If this physical form is not examined, similarly, the other five skandhas are not examined. We give up the examination. When the object does not exist, its characteristics also cannot exist. So how can we examine them? In this way, when a person does not firmly apprehend the entity of a thing as ultimately existing, having investigated with wisdom, the practitioner engages in non-conceptual, single-pointed concentration, and thus the identity listness of all phenomena is realized. If we don't do this, we can't overcome ignorance. 
And this is the quote by the Buddha about the burning of the woods. Uh, wood as being the analogy for uh, concepts one skilled in discerning faults, engages in yoga meditation and emptiness in order to get rid of conceptual elaborations. Here we have the, this meditation resulting in realizing or entering into the yoga of signlessness. And this refers to uh, one of the three, what are called the doors of liberation. Door number one, door number two, door number three. And uh, the first door of liberation is emptiness. The second one is signlessness. And the third one is wishlessness. And uh, this type of meditation results in the realization of the yoga of signlessness, which is the main door of liberation for the Mahayana tradition. Uh, let's see. The way of meditating it has been explained very clearly that through mere elimination of mental activity without examining the identity of things with wisdom, it's not possible to engage in non-conceptual meditation, i.e. attain enlightenment. Thus, concentration is done after the actual identity of things like form and so forth has been perfectly analyzed by wisdom and not by concentrating on them. Concentration is also not done by abiding between this world and the beyond and so forth. This is non-abiding concentration. Concentrating on the absence of object. Such a practitioner is called the meditator of supreme wisdom by specifically examining the identity of all things with wisdom. One perceives nothing. One does not perceive anything. In this way, we enter into the suchness and selflessness of persons. We become free from concepts and analysis because there's nothing to be analyzed or observed. You're free from expression, and with single-pointed mental engagement, you automatically enter into meditation without exertion. You meditate on and abide in uh, suchness. And then he talks about uh, dealing with obstacles, which is pretty straightforward. It's uh, sort of a balance between too tight and too loose, balance between shamatha and vipassana. If you become too discursive, you go back to shamatha. You like that phrase where he says, if the mind appears disinclined to do that, you know, and then pivot on to something else. But I love that notion. Ah. Disinclined. If the mind appears to be disinclined, <laughs> reflect on the advantages of single-pointed concentration. I meditate with delight. The dis defects of a distraction. Uh, the accomplishment. If and when the mind spontaneously engages in meditation on suchness, free of thinking and agitation, it should be left naturally and your efforts should be relaxed. So this is the culmination of Vipassana. This is actual Vipassana. Earlier, uh, Kongshul went through the different types and levels and so forth of Vipassana. At the end of that section, he came up to, well, there's, there's uh, preparatory Vipassana and actual. So all the rest was preparatory, all the analysis. And actual Vipassana is where you're dwelling in suchness without effort. Your efforts should be relaxed. If effort is applied, it will distract the mind. 
but if it's not applied when the mind is dull, you would be like a blind person. Uh, let's see, so this balance. Okay, that's Kamashila Tisha. We were actually seeing Kongchul quoted from Tisha, but his version is quite short. Um, on the level of the seeming, on the relative truth, in terms of the perspective of those who only see what is right in front of them. I think that's you and me. All presentations of cause and effect and so on explain all phenomena to be real in just the way they appear. Right? Seems like things operate according to cause and effect. So therefore, they have some reality, some sense of reality, conventionally. However, ultimately, when just this seeming reality as it appears is scrutinized and done away with through the great Madhyamaka reason, means there's nothing that can be grasped. So the uh, the realization of Buddhism is of nothing, <clears throat> not even as something as tiny as a fragment of the tip of a hair that is split a hundred times. Just <laughs> to bring home the point, you should internalize this with certainty. So this is cultivate the view, you know, preparation for vipassana is to understand the view. Then we sit comfortably on a comfortable seat in the cross-legged posture or in a chair. Uh, let's, As a start, let's, uh, let us say that entities are of two types, just for working. Just for uh, example, what possesses form and what's without form, matter and immaterial. <clears throat> what possesses form is a collection of infinitesimal particles. When we analyze these, not even the munest part of Minutus or remains, and so they're utterly without any appearance. They just divide it endlessly. That which is without form is the mind, and as for the mind, the past has already past mind has ceased, so we can't find that. The future hasn't come about, and as for the present mind, it's very difficult to examine. Again, he shifts on towards characteristics of things that have form, color, and shape. But uh, I think we have to understand that, he, that he's talking about there's no characteristics by which we identify mind. Since it's just like space, it is not established. This analogy of mind being like space is the key analogy that goes back to uh, the early Mahayana tradition. In other words, it is, it is free from unity and multiplicity. So it's free from being one or many. So uh, this idea that everything is one is a conceptual projection. We have to go beyond one. It's unarisen, natural luminosity. When analyzed and scrutinized with the weapons, again, weapons of reasoning, such as those just mentioned, you realize it's not established. At this point, with those two, what possesses form, what is out, definitely do not exist and not are, are not established as having any nature whatsoever. The very knowledge that discriminates them is not established either. Again, this thing about this, the fire, likewise all characteristics are established as non-existent, and the prajna itself is without appearance and luminous, not being established as anything whatsoever. The wisdom itself of emptiness does not exist as anything whatsoever. Thus all flaws are eliminated in this interval. A meditative concentration consciousness is without any thought, doesn't apprehend anything that's left behind. 
all mindfulness and mental engagement. So we go beyond mindfulness and any type of mental engagement with an object. For as long as the enemies are robbers, again, that phrase about conceptual mind, consciousness should just rest. How to end the practice when wishing to rise from meditation, slowly open the cross-legged position and stand up there with an illusion-like frame of mind. So what is an illusion-like frame of mind? A mind a mindset that, that remembers, recollects, oh, everything doesn't exist ultimately or in the way that I think it does. And therefore things are sort of illusory, like the illusion of real things is projects itself to my mind. That's happening all this time, this illusion-like appearance and it, with that understanding of our world as being like an illusion perform as many positive acts, actions with body speech and mind as possible go about buddha activity bodhisattva activity practice with devotion for a long time and uninterruptedly and then uh, you will see reality in this very lifetime all phenomena are effortlessly and spontaneously present of their own accord just as in the middle of space all phenomena are like illusions from the time of having manifested the, the vajra like meditative concentration upwards these bodhisattvas do not even have a glimpse phase of subsequent attainment but rest in meditative equipoise all the time so uh, after the Vajra-like meditative concentration, um, there's no differentiation between uh, equipoise in meditation and the subsequent or post-meditative state. And then we have uh, a commentary on the, the uh, slogans of Atisha. I think everybody's familiar with the slogans of Atisha. I neglected to put in the actual slogans of Atisha, the, the first bunch of them. But they're here in a slightly uh, different scheme from what is translated by the Delanda Translation Committee, but you'll you'll note you'll recognize them. And then we'll see Trump Rimache comment on them. And you'll see that that these slogans, so um, the, the first slogan of Atisha is uh, first practice the preliminaries. And then slogans two through, let's see, three, four, five. Two through uh, five are what's called absolute bodhicitta slogans for meditation. And those are a presentation of these four stages of meditation, Vipassana meditation. And uh, the next slogan is uh, in post-meditation, be a child of illusion. So that's how to how to uh, come out of meditation, vipassana meditation, and then all the rest of the slogans are relative bodhicitta slogans. How to perform bodhisattva activity, and so we see that Atisha incorporated these four stages into his slogans, the four stages of vipassana. So absolute bodhicitta practice is vipassana practice, and vice versa. So here's a sort of long-winded version of this by a gentleman named Ga Ramjampa Konga Yeshe. 
First, eliminating conceptual constructs regarding outer objects. The main conceptual construct we have regarding outer objects is that they exist. So we consider all things and events. It's like a dream. The first slogan of Atisha, he quotes the stage of the meditation by Kamala Shiel. He explains it. And then we work on the mind, eliminating the conceptual construct of regarding the mind as being truly real or existing. Examine the nature of unborn awareness. Really meaning, examine the nature of awareness and understand it to be unborn. Understand its nature to be unborn. It's beyond uh, beginning, middle, and end. And then eliminate conceptual constructions regarding the antidote. Is The antidote is the wisdom that arises. So then we, we eliminate the idea that the wisdom exists. And the, the uh, slogan is, let, let even the antidote be freed. Or we say uh, something slightly different. Liberate even the antidote. Again, he quotes the stage of the meditation by Kamala Sheila. And then uh, taking to, the interesting way of presenting this, taking to heart through meditation. It's just sort of bringing the whole thing home. Rest in the alia, the innocence of the path. So alia is different than uh, um, it's different than, well, it's different than alia vijnana. There's Alia and Alia Vishnana. And Alia Vishnana is the eighth consciousness. The term Vishnana in Sanskrit means consciousness. And Alia means universal ground. But when we say Alia without Vishnana, it's not the same as the eighth consciousness. Although some presentations of this will talk about the eighth consciousness, eighth consciousness, and sort of blend the eighth consciousness into this Alia as a something beyond the eighth consciousness but more uh, precise presentations of this identify that the alia is uh, some sort of ground beyond the eighth consciousnesses and it refers as uh, jane just said and as it says here it uh, it's another description or another way of talking of talking about shunyata it's called universal ground because it's the basis of all phenomena of samsara and nirvana. So having realized the object, the subject, and the wisdom as empty, we just let, let ourselves rest in the, the ground, the universal, Eric, beyond consciousness. Yes, sir. Yeah, I actually emailed you about this very thing. Um, you might not have gotten it yet, but in the, in the Mahayana Nalanda Bodhi presentation, the salya is described as Buddha nature. And, um, and um, my question was, um, uh, Rinpoche describes, describes resting in this field of energy. And my question to you was, is that a recognition of that resting at that field of energy? Is that a Vipassana experience? In the commentary that we have in this packet? No, and the way the way Rinpoche is describing it, um, uh, Ponlop Rinpoche. Oh, I, I would have to see the, the context, but it sounds like it. 
Yeah, he describes it as Tathagata and Buddha nature, and that and that we, we, the the idea is to rest in the nature of of that field of energy. Hmm. That sounds like the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, we were just we 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 just went through that last Thursday. <laughs> oh, how auspicious! Yeah, <laughs> auspicious coincidence. Timing. Yeah, which, which is why I brought it up. You know, I sent you an email anyway. And, um, cool. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Because it's really interesting to have to have this come up now. Cool. So over and over again, and we see these four stages presented as the stages of Vipassana. And uh, uh, it's basically just repeating the same thing over and over again. This one, this presentation has another slogan that our tradition doesn't have. Forsake the seven consciousnesses. Anyway. Um, nice presentation of the, of the conclusion of meditation practice. Um, and this this uh, experience of pliancy, which the Tibetan for is Xinjiang, which I sent you some readings on. We've seen uh, traditional readings on them, as well as Trungpa's readings on them. In between sessions, be a conjurer of illusions, be a child of illusions. Same similar thing. Oh, oh, I put this in there. Oh, this was sort of basic and everybody knew under, you, you all understood this one. You, you didn't even need to read this. This was pretty, pretty standard stuff, right? So let's just skip all that. I actually found it very helpful. I liked oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah, I liked oh, it a lot. Cool. <laughs> cool. Huh, anyone else? Me too. Yeah, ditto. I thought it was great. Yeah, I was just kidding. I I think it's the greatest ever. <laughs> I thought it was so amazing, which is why I put it in here. Is because he actually like tells you how to do the thing, right? You know. So let's look at Rimshay's presentation quickly, and then we'll go back to that one. So. Uh, Rimshe, you know, in his characteristic style, has, has a very interesting way of presenting this, you know, the, the sense of the of this being Vipassana practice. It's not obvious. But once you know that, that that's what it is in the tradition, then you can look for it and you begin to see that that's what he's doing in this. And he explains like the feeling of, of the practice as opposed to sort of the technical or technical part. Regarding everything as regarding things as dreams doesn't mean you become fuzzy and woolly, that everything has an edge of sleepiness about it. <laughs> I'd actually have a good dream, there's a graphic. Regarding Dharma's dreams means that although you might think that things are very solid, the way you perceive them is soft and dreamlike. In other words, like what even though we know intellectually, okay, we've gone through the analysis. I can't hear you.
Can you hear me now? Yes. I gotta put tape over this button or something. <laughs> um, Even though you know it intellectually was the last thing I think we heard. Something. Oh, like good. Thanks. That's what I was about to ask. So, um, even though you know intellectually that things uh, don't exist, you still, we still experience them in that way. We have, that's why we're, you know, not enlightened. So we have this in, intensely thick habitual pattern of, of acting as if things are truly existent. And so the way that we practice that is we study the, you know, the reasonings for things as being empty on the one hand, but then we also work with the way that we perceive our world we, by remembering the illusion-like quality of experience. And so that, that the feeling of doing that is like to have a softness about things where you don't immediately take things as to be like hard and rough uh, and dreamlike. Not as like, well, you know, things are not like uh, totally real. Things have a dreamlike quality, but at the same time, the production of your mind is quite vivid. If you don't have a mind, you wouldn't be able to perceive anything at all. Just throws in a joke here and there. But because you have a mind, you perceive things. Therefore, what you perceive is a product of your mind. You use your sense organs as channels. <clears throat> so then we examine the nature of uh, unborn awareness. Are we missing page 30? 29, 31. Is there no page 30? I have 30. Oh. I've got a page 30. Oh, I see. That's interesting. Look at your basic uh, mind. That's 30. I know. Yeah, look at that. Just simple awareness. Has no sections. Has no parts to it. Just look at that. See that. Examining doesn't mean analyzing. It's just viewing things as they are in the ordinary sense of not being able to, to find the different, uh, any way of dividing up mind. The reason our mind is known as unborn is we have no idea of our history. We have no idea where this mind, our crazy mind began. It has no indication, no characteristics. It flickers on and off, off and on all the time. Sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it's all over the place. Look at your mind. This is a part of ultimate bodhicitta trainer and discipline. Our mind fluctuates all the time. Just look at it. Just look at that. He said that a few times. I think he said it three times. Look at your mind. Look at that. Just look at that. They say traditionally, if they say something three times, then they really mean it. So, uh, self-liberate the antidote. The idea of an antidote is that everything is empty, so you don't, you have nothing to care about. You have occasional glimpse in your mind that nothing is exist is existent. So you have that sort of this this sense all the time, or as much as you of the time as you can, that things are not the way I think they are. <clears throat> 
but we don't we don't um, we don't uh, use that as a uh, like an antidote all the time that produces a, a state of feeling removed and not responsible and not participating in the suffering of the world. Uh, so, you know, this state of mind of, uh, of having an antidote, of viewing emptiness as an antidote, uh, like something that's going to protect you from the uh, pain and suffering of the world, is not the way to, to go about understanding emptiness. You know, this idea that, oh, nothing matters, so we just let it go, everything's empty, so you can do whatever you want. So that's poison, the poison of emptiness. That's a misinterpretation of uh, emptiness. And similarly, some people say they don't have to sit because they they just get it. They don't have to meditate. Oh, I get. I understand. You know, I know what that's about, and I'm experiencing it all the time. So I can go fishing <laughs> and meditate. That's a good one. Drive your Porsche, Porsche. <clears throat> we can update that to Tesla now, right? That's right. <laughs> Antidotes or any notion that we can do whatever we want, that as long as we're meditating, everything's going to be fine. The whole point of this slogan is that antidotes of, of any kind, or for that matter, occupational therapies of any kind, are not regarded as appropriate things to do. I hope you don't take this personally, Mary Beth. Mary Beth is an occupational therapist. Is that right? No, she's a physical therapist. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, we're not particularly seeking enlightenment or the simple experience of tranquility. We're trying to get over our deception. The rest of nature of Alia. This part was the coolest part. Uh, let's see. Uh, so let's see. Resting in the nature of Alia means going beyond the six sense consciousnesses and even beyond the seven consciousness, the fundamental discursive thought process, which brings about the other six on, on page 33. The basic Alia principle goes beyond all that. And even in ordinary situations, if you actually trace back to find out where everything came from, you'll find some primitive resting level. You could rest in that primitive basic existence, that existential level. Starting from the basic Alia principle, we then develop Alia Vishnana or Alia consciousness, which makes distinction. So he's really, he's gone beyond the eighth consciousness. So up here he said, we go beyond the sixth and the seventh. And he didn't say it, but he really means that we go beyond the eighth as well. And then we watch how the, the how we recreate consciousness, the Alia, the Vishnana. We create a separation between this and that. This is the notion of consciousness. Consciousness in uh, Sanskrit and Tibetan is uh, awareness of an object, divided, dualistic consciousness. The basic Alia principle, the, the universal ground does not have any bias. That's why it's called natural virtue. It's neutral, neither male or female, this or that. Whereas Alia consciousness is biased. It's either male or female and so forth. The basic wakefulness, Sukhudagarma, Tathagadagarma, Buddha nature, is beyond Alia. 
but it goes along with Ali at the same time. It's pre-Ali, but it encompasses the Ali state. So he's referring to sort of adding a tenth level. And, yeah, I uh, find this very confusing, this paragraph. I, I couldn't quite get it. Uh, there's there's a, a presentation on this by John Gakontral, where he clarifies that there's Aliya Jnana. So Jnana is a word that means wisdom. And when you add V, V-I in front of it, you get the consciousness. Vijnana is dualistic understanding. But when it's just Jnana, it's primordial wisdom, non-dualistic understanding or experience. And so in this tradition that Rinpoche is inheriting, uh, there's an identification that there's a universal ground which is neutral. And then sort of on the, and on one side, there's the evolution of samsara through the eighth, eighth consciousness, then the seven and the sixth consciousnesses. That's samsara. And then on the other side is the evolution of nirvana. There's the transformation of the alia, the basic ground, into enlightened mind. Alia jnana. Ground wisdom. Universal ground wisdom. He doesn't say it precisely, but this is what he's talking about. Is this kind of what Rob was asking about earlier? That it's like Buddha nature? Well, yeah, he's exactly. Basic wakefulness, Sugata Garbha, it's beyond all in. So, uh, uh, at least from what Rob said earlier, Pundit Rinpoche was was indicating that the alia was Buddha nature. He's he's just uh, presenting shorthand, but really, in in the uh, presentation that Pundit Rinpoche knows and uh, presents at Natarta, actually, he has taught this text by John Wilkontrol that I'm referring to. I was there and I heard him teach it. Where John Control teaches uh, all the Which text uh, anyway, is that you're referring to? It's it's translated. Uh, it's called the Profound Inner Topics. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Okay. And it's chapter one. And we've gone through it in, in uh, some of the remake shader courses, like a, a two or three of them. We've gone through at least at least one or two. This chapter, it's like a Vajrayana Abhidharma. <laughs> right. Anyway, so uh, Rimshe presents this idea. Derek? Yes. Just, I'm sorry, just one quick thing. So, In that same paragraph, when he says it is pre-Alia, but it encompasses this Alia state, what does that sentence mean? Who, it, what, what is the it, it referring to? <laughs> Cousin it refers to the Ali Vijnana that I've been describing. Oh. So Ali, Ali Vijnana uh, precedes Alia, but at the same time it encompasses it. Okay. So now on page 34, resting in Alia is the actual practice of ultimate bodhicitta. What happens during sitting? You experience ultimate bodhicitta at level. It is purely the realization that phenomena can be, cannot be regarded as solid, but at the same time, they're self-luminous. So this idea of uh, emptiness and luminosity being inseparable. The analogy of a film projector and that you have to work with the lamp. You take the lamp out of the projector 
<laughs> so there's no monkey business with your projector. So, so there's no longer any uh, option of the projector filtering or uh, influencing, manipulating the projection. And so the, the lamp is like the, uh, the alia or the alia jnana. And so you take it out of the, the uh, projector is the eight, is the eight consciousnesses as a whole is the projector. So in meditation, we take it out of the, the eight consciousnesses, our, our alia or alia jnana, and we put it in a flashlight. <laughs> Or you put it in your old fixture, and that's self-liberating. All you you trans you transplant it into a different scheme altogether. So you take your your wisdom mind out of the context of your neurotic mind, and we uh, let it be in its own way. It's interesting uh, analogy. This is an interesting statement. It might, it may be an embarrassing subject to discuss, but this book is designed for the ordinary practitioner. <laughs> we're not believing in our, in or cultivating Alia, but we're using it as a stepping stone. It would be dangerous if you cultivate it as an end in itself. This is, it's like referring to the, the wood has to burn itself up. It's just another step. So we're simply, we're talking very simply about Ali as just a clear mind, a basic clear mind, simplicity, clarity, non-discursive, mm. very basic Ali, and completely free from all the consciousnesses, including the eighth. But it is the Ali of basic potentiality. We're not trying to grasp what a nature immediately at this point. This instruction on resting in Ali is given to somebody at a very beginner level. A lot of us have no idea whether we're sitting or not sitting. It's a funny thing to say, isn't that? I don't know if that's ever happened to you guys, but that's what's happened to me where, like, you forget that you're sitting. It's sort of embarrassing. Um, anyway, we got to slow down. Post-meditation, be a child of illusion. So... We begin to see that the games going on are not even big, big games, but just simply illusory games. To realize that requires a lot of mindfulness and awareness working together. Illusion does not mean hazing, it's confusion and mirage. Being a child of illusion means that you continue what you've experienced in your sitting practice, i.e., resting in the nature of all into post meditation. Continuing the analogy, the projector during post meditation take the ball bound out of the new lamp you need a, 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 a way of transporting that bulb you don't have the screen and the film but you transfer the bulb into a flashlight carry it with you <laughs> what a funny guy uh, let's see everything is workable it's like swimming you swim along in your phenomenal world you can't just float you have to swim you have to use your limbs you know so how do we act as a child of illusion. We swim along in the world, but we gotta, you know, participate. We're not just like a jellyfish. Cost of using your limbs is the basic stroke of mindfulness and awareness. A stroke is in a swim stroke, like the crawl or the whatever it's called, the other types of strokes. Here we have mindfulness and awareness stroke. 
the flash quality of it. You flash into things. You're swimmingly, swimming constantly in post-meditation. During meditation, you just sit and rest in the nature of your aware very simply. This is how we develop ultimate bodhicitta. This, so, so his presentation of Vipassana is largely this ultimate Vipassana of just resting in aware. It's not abstract. You simply look at phenomena and see their padded wall quality, if you like. Padded wall is like this double-edged analogy. It's like, on the one hand, it's like things are empty. But on the other hand, if, if our walls are padded, that means that we've gone crazy, right? You know, So we have an insane mind that thinks things are real. little uh, interesting analogy there. That's the illusion. Padded walls everywhere. Okay. Uh, here we this a conclusion. Let's see. If you want to take a vacation from your practice, you can do so and still remain a child of illusion. Things just keep on beeping at you all the time. It's very lucid, almost whimsical. Oh, here. Sorry, this was uh, uh, sort of taking joy in the, in the practice and not being claustrophobic about it. The idea of being a child of illusion is that we don't feel claustrophobic. We don't feel that we're closed in. Instead, you can feel your child of illusion dancing around, clicking with all the beeps, fresh, simple, and effective. It's trying to paint like a positive picture of this. Being a child of illusion is very simple. Being willing to realize the simplicity of phenomenal play and to use that as part of awareness and mindfulness. It's a very strong phrase. Think about it. Try to be one. You have plenty of opportunities. Okay, so we have little time left, and uh, we have like five minutes. So I'm going to propose that we come back to the Ken McLeod, or Cloyd? Claude. I work with a guy with the same last name, and he pronounces it McLeod, for what it's worth. McLeod. Hey, McLeod, get off of my you. Okay, so... uh, We'll go through this next week. We'll revisit this next week. And instead, we're going to take a leap and go back to uh, the last one that we missed from uh, seven. Meditation is taking a leap. From the book, Work, Sex, and Money, Real Life on the Path of Meditation, seminar which she gave in Boston, like in 71 or two or something, apparently. And this is a nice little uh, sort of non-structured way of presenting the sort of uh, the, the type of Vipassana practice he presents. It doesn't have all the stages and categories. It's just sort of, you know, leaping. So we're in, we're in uh, class seven source book and uh, we're on page 20. Meditation is taking a leap. Taking a leap means experiencing the openness of space. You can take this kind of meditative leap while you're working. It's not too dangerous. You can do it at home on your own. It's connected with bringing air and earth together. You can't feel the earth unless you feel the air. The more you feel the air, the more you feel the earth. Feeling the air and the earth together is feeling the space between you and the objects you are working with. This becomes a natural awareness of openness. You automatically begin to feel peace and lightness. So... Establishing the sphere of awareness of the ground and the sky, heaven and earth. 
sky, the earth, the air, space. The way to practice this is not to try to concentrate or try to be aware of yourself while managing the task you're doing. Rather, you have a general feeling of acknowledging. And when he says existence, he's not like using that in the technical sense of like things existing. He's just saying acknowledging um, phenomena with openness while you work or appearance. Then you feel that there is more room to do things, more room to work. By cultivating continual meditative state, you're acknowledging the existence of openness. You don't have to try to hold on to this or try to bring it about deliberately. Just the pure acknowledgement of that state is enough. Acknowledge the vast energy of openness. Just flash on it. Just acknowledge it. Flash on it for a second. A flash of acknowledgement is all it takes. Have it acknowledged. Don't hold. You almost ignore it after that. So you flash and disown. Flash and let go. Flash on the energy of openness. Then you let go of it. You don't try to capture the experience. Continue whatever you're doing. The feeling of openness will also continue. will begin to develop the actual feel of the situation, of the things that you're working with, whatever. The awareness we're talking about here is not constant awareness as an object of mind. Instead of taking awareness as an object, you become one with awareness, one with the open space, which of course also means becoming one with the actual things you're working with. Then the whole process becomes a very easy one-way process rather than a situation in which you're trying to split yourself into different levels of awareness with one level minding the other. So he's talking to, he's like referring to this process of looking at mind which is the traditional Mahayana version of splitting yourself and looking at the looker and so forth, which he has also presented of looking at, you know, who's meditating. And here he's saying, just let go of that. With this easy one-way, one-step process, you begin to make a real relationship with your world. Don't try to possess the openness, but just acknowledge it and then turn away from it. It's important to turn away because if you try to possess openness, you have to chase after it. You try to follow it, which you can't actually do. You can't actually possess it at all. If you let go of it and disown it and then continue working or going on, this feeling stays with you all along, all the way along. Openness refers to a meditative state of simplicity, lack of complication. The absence of complications becomes simplicity. Within simplicity, there's room to do everything. This is true of everyday actions as well as formal meditation itself. So he's been talking sort of as, as if he's describing post-meditation throughout. And I've been sort of construing it as both. And then at the end, he says, this is true of both situations. As long as we feel some sense of empty space and openness, there's something to work with. It's not so very difficult to find a sense of space. It just requires taking a leap into the empty space by not questioning or second-guessing ourselves. This feeling of empty space might be unpleasant to start with, but that's okay. Just leap into it and see what happens. Meditation in particular provides us with the inspiration to relate to the spaciousness of life. To begin with, this comes from working with our thoughts. In your meditation practice, you might find that thoughts are constantly rushing to your mind. Yeah. If you see them as purely thoughts rather than focusing on the subject of those thoughts, then there's more space. When you think of your thoughts purely as a thinking process, 
<clears throat> rather than focusing on the contents of thought. That will make your attitude towards thoughts very impersonal. If you're watching a cloud and within this cloud you saw your friends and relatives walking around, then immediately you would associate yourself with those people and you would name them and fixate on them apart from the cloud. Then you're caught up with this whole thing. So he's saying like, you see them in a cloud, obviously they're not in a cloud, it's total projection of, you know, but you've got sucked in by the projection and suddenly you're in the cloud with your relatives, you know, your family, oh my God, what can be worse? So, you know, that's believing our thoughts. When you're caught up in the whole thing, that becomes very crowded, nice way of saying it. Whereas if you just notice people and don't try to identify with them, it's more impersonal. It's the same thing with your thoughts. In meditation, you develop this impersonal way of looking at thoughts. So, comments, suggestions, questions. Lori. Something you mentioned last week I've been trying to work with, and it, it seems really helpful, but I wish I could do it better. Um, when you said thinking about words, like when your mind is discursive and then you take a word and like, what is it, what is that word? And, and try to just think about it until it just makes no sense kind of. Yeah. And I feel like, oh, I almost have it. Like I almost, you know, <laughs> if I could only get, you know, past that, then I could really rest, you know, in the nature, you know, but I, <laughs> but I can't quite do it. So have have you tried like repeating a word like many yeah. many many times, uh-huh. and and it's it stays that word. It won't go into no the... no. It go it kind of goes into a weird thing, but it doesn't you, completely are, eliminate the discursiveness. Well, it comes back. Yeah, the discursiveness yeah. comes back. But but you know, stay present during that process of it dissolving into gobbledygook, and and see if you can remain there. Okay. You know, before going to some other word. Okay. I just keep, you know, bringing up that word and, and like experiencing the foreign nature of it at that point. Okay, thanks. I think that's sort of a, uh, a similar experience. Helpful. What else? I have a question. Bill. Hey, thanks. Um, I appreciate everything you're doing with the um, very large amount of information. I think I've, I've, I've either missed one, one spot of it or I just don't understand it yet, which is um, coming through the, the initial like Shambhala meditation training years ago, there was a, a part it felt like there was a part of meditation where you do sitting meditation and then I would have an intention. I I wouldn't just suddenly be, wow, look now I'm paying less attention to the breath. It would, it would be okay. Now I'm going to pay less attention to the breath and rest more in open space with this, with, with these descriptions, is there a point during your sitting practice where you might intend to try to, uh, bring about Vipassana practice? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, are, are there other people that are familiar with this this way of uh, understanding meditation that Bill is talking about that have come through Shambhala? 
I spoke to someone about it, just this thing recently. Oh, Anya, you're, you're familiar with it also. Yeah, like the more open practice, I think. Is that what you're talking about, Bill? Yeah, and the, kind of what I'm trying to ask is like, is there a point where you think, okay, now I'm going to do Vipassana practice, and then you try to do Vipassana practice. But I tried to say it a little more elegantly than that. So uh, I can't remember if you joined at the beginning tonight. Were you here for the meditation? Yes, I was in the, here in the beginning, yes. So that was my attempt to get you to do Vipassana meditation. And so I, there was definitely a point where I shifted from uh, shamatha-type meditation to uh, rousing investigation of a Pashna type investigation. So I was doing a, 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 a what I'll call a, a sort of light analytical meditation. Um, the, uh, the, the Mahayana, the complicated analytical meditation that we've seen referred to includes going through the various reasonings for emptiness or egolessness or selflessness. So that I would call a heavy analytical medita uh, Vipassana meditation. But a lighter Vipassana analytical meditation is the sort of looking at the looker type of meditation that's common in our tradition of the Mahamudra tradition. And so that was, uh, there was very, very definitely a point where I said, okay, now let's, uh, I sort of bl tried to blend it in so it wasn't that abrupt, but... In other words, yes, there definitely is uh, a point where where you say, okay, I'm going to practice shamatha, and then I'm going to practice vipassana. And so you stabilize, and you get to a point in your shamatha where you're stable, and then you start to look into who's meditating, who's looking, and, and, um, and things like that, looking, looking at what's going on. And... Uh, in the Mahamudra tradition, the, the traditional way of doing that is to start by looking at the mind. And we saw that also in the Mahayana presentation that we went through, the second phase of what is the mind? Does it have a shape or a color? And so we saw that in a number of texts that we went through from the Mahayana tradition, and that's the standard uh, beginning practice in Mahamudra, is looking for the mind, shape or color, and they don't they don't usually say it but they're they're also including location and location is the easiest one to start with like is your looker located somewhere and i tried to do this in the meditation i was like where are you looking from when you look down at your stomach expanding are you looking down at i already said it but when you look at that are you looking down at it and when you're in it are you looking up at the look you know where are you looking from so try we we know that the mind uh, is not a material object and so has no location or color or shape, but we feel like it does. So you saw in uh, the presentation by Ken McLeod, McLeod that uh, this this section where he says in the West we tend to. Uh, not take that practice seriously because we know that the mind has no color, shape, and location. And so 
uh, we don't, we, we sort of gloss over it. And I think many of us, and I did for years, not really take that practice seriously until I realized by reading things like his presentation that, oh, we all have a projection of our mind as being in a certain location. And anything that has a location has a shape and a size, and anything that has a shape or a size also has a color. We, we don't usually feel like our mind has a color, but we definitely feel like our mind has a location. And once, so, so the first step is to locate the projection of your mind. So the, the location of your mind is a conceptual pro projection. And it's the sort of, um, uh, formation, it's the formation, it's the, it's the sort of concretization of your ignorance that believes that you exist, that you have a self, and that, that, uh, uh manifests itself by believing that, uh, the looker has a place. And so all of the, the investigations have to do with looking at that sense of self. And uh, Rimshe does it in a, in a more general way, Trump Rimshe of saying, like, look at the looker who's meditating, things like that that we went through. And um, the Mahamudra tradition does it in a more focused way, look at the mind, where's the shape and color, as did the, Maham, uh, the Mahayana uh, presentation. Although the Mahayana presentation is more into looking at the ayatanas, sorry, the skandhas, the eight consciousnesses, and so forth, analyzing the mind in a little more complexity. But in other words, yes, there is, you know, the, the, sorry, the sort of shortcut to the, to your question. Yes, there is definitely a place where you decide, okay, I'm going to do the investigation. And once you're, once, uh, you remember or think of it, you may start doing it before, like, uh, intentionally deciding to, you may, you may think of, oh, there's this practice of looking at the looker and you may just start doing it. But, uh, but it's helpful to like get a nice stable basis in shamatha before you do that. And, um, and, and this is different actually than in the Shambhala tradition. There's this notion of meditation as being uh, having three stages or phases of being um, close meditation, open and beyond. And these are the terms that are used. And that description is of, uh, is really a way of describing the three stages of shamatha that we went through. Shamatha with a concrete form or object, shamatha with uh, a non-concrete object, and shamatha without object. And in the Shambhala tradition, those are uh, presented in Shambhala trainings as a uh, as different practices that line up with the different levels, and they're they're presented in a way that uh, people think, um, oh, I can progress through them by by intending to progress through them. And shamatha is not like vipassana in that way. Vipassana, you can intend to do. Shamatha, you, you really can't in, uh, intend to progress to no object um, with, in a successful way. If you think I'm going to do shamatha without an object, 
your mind turns into mush and you basically start following your thought if you're not ready to do that. And so the way Trungpa Rinpoche presents the progression of shamatha is that, that it happens naturally, that the, the concrete quality of the object of the posture and the breath uh, lessens gradually over time if we do the, the practice correctly. And we naturally progress from close to open and beyond object in shamatha. But this, this notion that, you know, you do Shambhala training, you do level three, and it's like, oh, I can decide now to, like, you know, not have a, uh, an object is not a, a helpful thing, particularly. It's it, it, in my experience. Anyway, I, I sort of rambled around and, and uh, tried to answer a number of different things. So I hope that was a little bit helpful. Very much. Thank you. So we're uh, seriously over uh, time, so let's end here, and we'll uh, take up whatever we missed next time. And we do our uh, concluding chantos. Let's see. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you, Derek. Thank you. Nice to see you all. Thank you very much. Good night. Take care. Take care. Be well.